Part two, section one of My Mortal Enemy by Willa Cather. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Part two, section one. Ten years after that visit to New York, I happened to be in a sprawling, overgrown West Coast city, which was in the throes of rapid development. It ran about the shore, stumbling all over itself and finally tumbled untidily into the sea. Every hotel and boarding-house was overcrowded, and I was very poor. Things had gone badly with my family and with me. I had come west in the middle of the year to take a position in a college, a college that was as experimental and unsubstantial as everything else in the place. I found lodgings in an apartment hotel, wretchedly built and already falling to pieces, although it was new. I moved in on a Sunday morning, and while I was unpacking my trunk, I heard, through the thin walls, my neighbor stirring about, a man, and from the huskiness of his cough, and something measured in his movements, not a young man, the caution of his step, the guarded consideration of his activities, let me know that he did not wish to thrust the details of his housekeeping upon other people any more than he could help. Presently I detected the ugly smell of gasoline in the air, heard a sound of silk being snapped and shaken, and then a voice humming very low, an old German air. Yes, Schubert's Frühling's Glaube. Ta, 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 ta! Ta-ta-da-ta-ta-ta! In a moment I saw the ends of dark neckties fluttering out of the window next to mine. All this made me melancholy, more than the dreariness of my own case. I was young, and it didn't matter so much about me. For youth there is always the hope, the certainty of better things. But an old man— a gentleman living in this shabby, comfortless place, cleaning his neckties of a Sunday morning and humming to himself. It depressed me unreasonably. I was glad when his outer door shut softly, and I heard no more of him. There was an indifferent restaurant on the ground floor of the hotel. As I was going down to my dinner that evening, I met at the head of the stairs— a man coming up and carrying a large black tin tray. His head was bent and his eyes were lowered. As he drew aside to let me pass, in spite of his thin white hair and stooped shoulders, I recognized Oswald Henshaw, whom I had not seen for so many years. Not, indeed, since that afternoon when he took me to see Sarah Bernhardt play Hamlet. When I called his name, he started looked at me, and rested the tray on the sill of the blindless window that lighted the naked stairway. Nellie? Nellie Birdseye? Can it be? His voice was quite uncertain. He seemed deeply shaken and pulled out a handkerchief to wipe his forehead. But, Nellie, you have grown up. I would not know you. What good fortune for Myra. She will hardly believe it when I tell her. She is ill, my poor Myra. Oh, very ill, but we must not speak of that, nor seem to know it. What it will mean to her to see you again. Her friends always were so much to her, you remember? 
Will you stop and see us as you come up? Her room is thirty-two. Rap gently and I'll be waiting for you. Now I must take her dinner. Oh, I hope for her sake you are staying some time. She has no one here. He took up the tray and went softly along the uncarpeted hall. I felt little zest for the canned vegetables and hard meat the waitress put before me. I had known that the Henshaws had come on evil days and were wandering about among the cities of the Pacific coast, but Myra had stopped writing to Aunt Lydia beyond a word of greeting at Christmas and on her birthday. She had ceased to give us any information about their way of life. We knew that several years after my memorable visit in New York, the railroad to whose president Oswald had long been private secretary was put into the hands of a receiver, and the retiring president went abroad to live. Henshaw had remained with a new management, but very soon the road was taken over by one of the great trunk lines, and the office staff was cut in two. In the reorganization, Henshaw was offered a small position, which he indignantly refused. His wife wouldn't let him think of accepting it. He went to San Francisco as manager of a commission house. The business failed, and what had happened to them since I did not know. I lingered long over my dismal dinner. I had not the courage to go upstairs— Henshaw was not more than sixty, but he looked much older. He had the tired, tired face of one who has utterly lost hope. Oswald had got his wife up out of bed to receive me. When I entered, she was sitting in a wheelchair by an open window, wrapped in a Chinese dressing gown, with a bright shawl over her feet. She threw out both arms to me, and as she hugged me, flashed into her old gay laugh. "'Now, wasn't it clever of you to find us, Nellie? And we so safely hidden, in earth like a pair of old foxes. But it was in the cards that we should meet again. Now I understand. A wise woman has been coming to read my fortune for me, and the Queen of Hearts has been coming up out of the pack when she had no business to.' A beloved friend coming out of the past. Well, Nellie dear, I couldn't think of any old friends that weren't better away, for one reason or another, while we are in temporary eclipse. I gain strength faster if I haven't people on my mind. But you, Nellie, that's different. She put my two hands to her cheeks, making a frame for her face. That's different. Somebody young and clear-eyed, chock-full of opinions and without a past. But you may have a past already? The darkest ones come early. I was delighted. She was, she was herself, Myra Henshaw. I hadn't expected anything so good. The electric bulbs in the room were shrouded and muffled with colored scarves, and in that light she looked much less changed than Oswald. The corners of her mouth had relaxed a little, but they could still curl very scornfully upon occasion. Her nose was the same sniffy little nose, with its restless arched nostrils, and her double chin, though softer, was no fuller. A strong cable of grey-black hair was wound on the top of her head, which, as she once remarked, 
was no head for a woman at all, but would have graced one of the wickedest of the Roman emperors. Her bed was in the alcove behind her. In the shadowy dimness of the room I recognized some of the rugs from their New York apartment, some of the old pictures with frames peeling and glass cracked. Here was Myra's little inlaid tea-table and the desk at which Oswald had been writing that day when I dropped in upon their quarrel. At the windows were the dear plum-colored curtains, their cream lining streaked and faded, but the sight of them rejoiced me more than I could tell the Henshaws. "'And where did you come from, Nellie? What are you doing here in heaven's name?' While I explained myself, she listened intently, holding my wrist with one of her beautiful little hands, which were so inexplicably mischievous in their outline, and which, I noticed, were still white and well cared for. Ah, but teaching, Nellie, I don't like that, not even for a temporary expedient. It's a cul-de-sac. Generous young people use themselves all up at it. They have no sense. Only the stupid and the phlegmatic should teach. But won't you allow me, too, a temporary eclipse? She laughed and squeezed my hand. Ah, we wouldn't be hiding in the shadow if we were five and twenty. We were throwing off sparks like a pair of shooting stars, weren't we, Oswald? No, I can't bear teaching for you, Nellie. Why not journalism? You could always make your way easily there. Because I hate journalism. I know what I want to do, and I'll work my way out yet, if only you'll give me time. Very well, dear, she sighed. But I'm ambitious for you. I've no patience with young people when they drift. I wish I could live their lives for them. I'd know how. Uh, but there it is, by the time you've learned the shortcuts— your feet puff up so that you can't take the road at all. Now tell me about your mother and my Lydia. I had hardly begun when she lifted one finger and sniffed the air. Do you get it, that bitter smell of the sea? It's apt to come in on the night wind. I live on it. Sometimes I can still take a drive along the shore. Go on. You say that Lydia and your mother are at present in disputation about the possession of your late grandfather's portrait. Why don't you cut it in two for them, Nellie? I remember it perfectly, and half of it would be enough for anybody. While I told her any amusing gossip I could remember about my family, she sat crippled but powerful in her brilliant wrappings. She looked strong and broken, generous and tyrannical, a witty and rather wicked old woman who hated life for its defeats and loved it for its absurdities. I recalled her angry laugh and how she had always greeted shock or sorrow with that dry, exultant chuckle which seemed to say, Aha! I have one more piece of evidence, one more against the hideous injustice God permits in this world. While we were talking, the silence of the strangely balmy February evening was rudely disturbed by the sound of doors slamming and heavy tramping overhead. Mrs. Henshaw winced, a look of apprehension and helplessness, 
a tortured expression came over her face. She turned sharply to her husband, who was resting peacefully in one of their old deep chairs over by the muffled light. There they are, those animals! He sat up. They have just come back from church, he said in a troubled voice. Why should I have to know when they come back from church? Why should I have the details of their stupid, messy existence thrust upon me all day long and half the night? She broke out bitterly. Her features became tense as from an attack of pain, and I realized how unable she was to bear things. We are unfortunate in the people who live over us, Oswald explained. They annoy us a great deal. These new houses are poorly built and every sound carries. Couldn't you ask them to walk more quietly? I suggested. He smiled and shook his head. We have, but it seems to make them worse. They are that kind of people. His wife broke in. The palavery kind of southerners, all that slushy gush on the surface and no sensibilities whatever. A race without consonants and without delicacy. They tramp up there all day long like cattle. The stalled ox would have trod softer. Their energy isn't worth anything, so they use it up gabbling and running about, beating my brains into a jelly. She had scarcely stopped for breath when I heard a telephone ring overhead, then shrieks of laughter, and two people ran across the floor as if they were running a foot-race. "'You hear?' Mrs. Henshaw looked at me triumphantly. "'Those two silly old hens race each other to the telephone, as if they had a sweetheart at the other end of it.' While I could still climb stairs, I hobbled up to that woman and implored her, and she began gushing about my sister and my son and what raffined people they were. Oh, that's the cruelty of being poor. It leaves you at the mercy of such pigs. Money is a protection, a cloak. It can buy one quiet and some sort of dignity. She leaned back, exhausted, and shut her eyes. Come, Nellie said Oswald softly. He walked down the hall to my door with me. I'm sorry the disturbance began while you were there. Sometimes they go to the movies and stay out later, he said mournfully. I've talked to that woman and to her son, but they are very unfeeling people. But wouldn't the management interfere in a case of sickness? Again he shook his head. No, they pay a higher rent than we do occupy more rooms, and we are somewhat under obligation to the management. End of Part 2, Section 1